Bismillah, greetings and peace, loved ones. This is Baraka Blue. This new podcast is featuring Ansa Tamara Gray. Tamara is a teacher, an educator, a sheikha, an Islamic scholar. She has a master's in education uh, as well as being traditionally trained in the Islamic sciences. And I got to sit down with her recently when I was in Minnesota visiting Brother Ali, my friend, and uh, trying to stay warm in the intense snow. (laughs) This was a few months back, so it was still in the dead of winter. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. We talked a lot about education and learning and... uh, since she's someone who has a great specialty in that area, it was a good conversation. We did the conversation in her bookstore. She has a wonderful bookstore there in Minnesota, and I'll put the link to the to her to her resources website um, as well as her bookstore, so you can check it out if you're in the Minnesota area. Thank you for tuning in continuously to path and present uh it's all love and please continue to not only listen but spread it through word of mouth let your people know if you dig it support on patreon the link to the patreon is on our soundcloud that allows you to financially support and uh, people have been supporting it's real cool when people give like a dollar two dollars or five dollars because uh you know, it's a real grassroots endeavor. And if everybody who listened and who dug it was to do that, we'd be bowling. Anyway, I'm still in Malaysia. I just finished uh, two weeks of programs um, and enjoying it, visiting some folks now here. Um, I've had some really good conversations here. So, inshallah, get those podcasts uploaded soon. I'm on to Indonesia in a few days. So send a love and light to all beings in all localities. Peace. So we're sitting in your bookstore. Um, What do you, why did you want to have a bookstore? Well, (laughs) Why did I want to have a bookstore? Actually, so the the bookstore idea was more of a stumbled upon. It came. I walked into the bookstore idea through the publishing company, and walked into the publishing company through thinking about the importance of books. And actually, well, there are two things that happened. One is that I wanted to open up a space. I wanted a space where something along the idea of the third space, like Tatlif does, and mm-hmm. things like that because it is so difficult for women to find that comfortable space in a mosque. And more importantly, where is that place where we can go in any time and just sit and talk to one another? It doesn't exist. So that was really important to me. And because of my background, I thought, oh, I'm going to open up an institution that teaches Arabic or Quran, or Arabic and Quran. And we already had an online one, so that would have been a really logical next step. But I had just recently come back to Minnesota that online piece was also brand new. And uh, here in Minnesota, there's another sister who was just in the beginning processes of starting that type of an institute. And I didn't want to be that person that uh, competes with another. I just didn't want to be in that. I didn't mm-hmm. want to be competitive in that right. space. I'd rather support her in her space. So I kind of put that idea to the side for a little while, even though at that time I was really thinking about the importance of institutions and how important it is to have a space during that time, I, we decided to publish. We wanted to publish books because books are really part of what changes culture. That ma- the master narrative and the things that we read tell us something about who we are. And the Muslim in most fiction books or even nonfiction books, the Muslim is a criminal or is a distant person or is a um, someone who is... Dark-skinned Disney villain. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. 
So we wanted to change that, and um, especially with women in Muslim in books, in any type of book, Muslim women, all of a sudden they're oppressed, and their families are against them, and they're suffering, and they just need, you know, something to come and save them, usually from Islam. So we wanted to work on that, and I was living in an apartment at the time, and I thought, where am I going to put all these books? We were publishing, like, we were ready to go, you know, and we're going to have a thousand copies coming at us, a thousand five hundred copies coming at us. For each title, what am I going to do? And so I thought, well, I better open a bookstore. And so that's what we did. And the bookstore then grew into this idea of, well, what do I? What is a bookstore, and what do I want that to be? And that's why it's a social justice bookstore. It's not just an Islamic bookstore. It's a, our bookstore is about social justice, about bringing community together. It's about being a focal point where people from all different communities in Minnesota can come together and talk to each other and learn from each other. Things like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, before we started recording, we were talking about the fact that a bookstore is a place where you go and you may have a specific topic in mind or even a specific book in mind, but by necessity, you're going to come across a whole range of books in that topic and then just perusing a bookstore, you know? Yeah. And you come upon topics you didn't even know you were interested in. Or yes. if you're interested in poetry, you come upon new poets. Whoa, I didn't know, you know? And the kind of brick-and-mortar bookstore is just like the brick-and-mortar record stores because the same thing can be said for a record store. You come across new music. They're kind of you know, all going out of business, well, not all, but really quickly, you mm -hmm. know, because everything's online or there's these big, huge, you know, Barnes and Noble, um, Walmartification of <laughs> everything, right? Big fish take little fish. Yes. Um, but something is lost in the sense that, you know, you miss out on getting exposed. On the internet, it's maybe harder to get exposed to new ideas. The internet's cool because if you know what you're looking for, you can find it. Yeah. But the problem is, you may there's so much out there that you may not. It's hard to just stumble upon things. You know? And you you might miss out. Yeah, I mean, in in, a, in the bookstore, I think of bookstores as adult education and sort of a creative way. Sometimes we think about education in a really stifled schoolroom type of mm -hmm. vision. We get this idea of, oh, you're, going, you're being educated. That means you're in a classroom. I think as adults, our education should never stop, but it changes form. And a bookstore is definitely a, ne a necessary institution for that education to continue. Because when you're talking about stumbling across a book, that's an absolute, that happens all the time when you go into a bookstore and you stumble across amazing ideas. Even if you don't read the book, sometimes just reading the title lets you know that other people are thinking about those things. And so you think to yourself, well, maybe I need to start thinking about those things. And that can begin a process of learning and changing for everyone, not just adults, obviously, but our books, we have children's books, but I guess the ch when a child is with a parent, usually the child is going in with the parent. It's still the parent looking at the books. It's still that adult education piece. We have a book for babies called A is for Activism. And I think that book was written for adults, even though it's a board book and even though babies are going to hold it, but parents are going to read that book for children. Right. And so, yeah, I think bookstores are really... a a creative adult education institution. And in Minneapolis, they're pretty popular. They're not dying out here at all. We're. Uh, Why do you think that is? I don't know. Minneapolis is a, Minneapolis-St. Paul, I should say, is a really interesting place to live. Maybe because we have really intense winters. I don't know. <laughs> right. You're, you're not going to like go to the park. You're not going to be outside <laughs> at the beach. So you better... I mean, the same thing in Seattle, right? Seattle always produces... A lot of amazing music. Yeah. And writers. And, and a lot of people attribute that to the weather. Like, you got to be inside. So, all right, let's go in the garage and, like, play around with this guitar. Like, you know. Right. Or 
And then just the moodiness of the weather kind of gets you all in your feelings. And you, yeah, <laughs> you want to yeah. write a poem or write some lyrics or something. Well, and Minnesotans actually are very outdoorsy. Like, we go, we go outside in the winter. We, everyone has ice skates and skis and snowshoes and mm-hmm. warm jackets and mittens and all of those things. But even when you're doing that, it's still nice to go in the afternoon to a bookstore. And the independent bookstore scene in, in the Twin City area and even the wider Minnesota area is very specific. So you can, if, if I'm thinking about the different independent bookstores, I can kind of think of the themes that they work themselves around. So you could spend a day going from one to the other, and in every single independent bookstore you would find new titles and new exciting things to think about. One of the cool things about a bookstore that, that I love is, like, if you look at all these books, every single one of the hundreds, the thousands of books in here, um, one person dedicated either their whole life or a good portion of their mm-hmm. life to that subject. Yeah. You know, and like, so they did the work. And so in a few days or a few weeks, however long, you could get the gist, get a pretty deep grasp of what took them an entire lifetime. So they're like, yeah. here, I yeah. devoted my life to this. Now I'm giving you this, you know, and allowing you to consume it or to imbibe it um, in the short time, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, yes, that's a very, uh, that's a very deep thought, really. And especially because we're both publisher and bookstore, and I think about all the different aspects of that book publishing. So it is the author and the author's heart and time that goes into the book, and then the copy editor and the publisher and the illustrator and all of the different people that come together to bring this this piece of time and life into someone else's life and really change. And I think you're always changed when you read a book. Yeah. Um, in Malaysia, I was in Malaysia. We were, you mentioned Malaysia earlier. Um, there is a place on the outskirts, it's like an hour outside of Kuala Lumpur, called the University of Life. And um, it's a retreat center founded by someone named Habib Al-Athas. And he's a very, very eccentric and interesting person. He's like an actor in his youth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's one of the Habib. Like, he's of that right. lineage. Like, so but he, he wears, like, he always wears cowboy hats and cowboy boots and, like, really bright, loud colors and, He's a very eccentric and unique person. And he made this entire retreat center from found objects, like upcycled. Oh, wow. So it's all like strange, like horseshoes, like even in the foundation of a building, like and all these stones and tiles. And it's like you're in a theme park. Usama Cannon, he called it the Sufi Willy Wonka. Like you feel like you <laughs> just stepped into some. But I like that. And, and, when I was with him there, he, like, there's a story he has for every tree and every stone, you know. Mm-hmm. And what I loved about the fact that he called it that, the University of Life. Because that is ultimately what this whole creation is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, like, you were kind of leading to, is it, I don't know, I read some statistic that, you know, like, Half of Americans, after they graduate high school or college, they never read a book cover to cover in the rest of their life. Wow. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think the school, unfortunately, formal education in our age, the thing it's most successful at is getting people to actually dislike learning. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's hard, like, to standardize because the whole thing of education is to get people to come to epiphanies, realizations, awakenings, broadenings, transformations. Mm-hmm. And those are things that, on some level, it's not about teaching someone something. It's about teaching someone to understand how to attain that experience themselves. I think mm-hmm. that's really what spirituality is about, too. Like, there's certain things you can teach people. Right. But the essence of it always is about, I'm going to teach you things so that you can experience them yourself. 
Yes. In other words, like, you know, the Sufis always use the analogy of honey. You know, it's like, I'm not going to teach you about honey, but I'm going to teach you how to taste the honey. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so I'm a school person, just throwing that out there. <laughs> <laughs> I worked in schools for, uh, oh, many, many years, 25 years maybe. Actually, all of my adult life until I came to the United States. And the only reason I stopped working in schools is because I... I came to Minnesota, this is where I'm from, and the licensing situation here is actually quite difficult. Other states are easier to get relicensed or whatever. I'd been out of the country for so long. And so that's why I switched from, that's originally why I switched from schooling to nonprofits. But um, I would say that the schooling, the structure of the school that we have today that was originally developed for the industrial age in order to create a certain type of citizen is not really conducive to what we need to build the kind of person that you're talking about. But I would also say that I'm a little hesitant about the idea that um, that schools teach us not to like learning because I think that there's a place in learning that's just plain old hard and it's just not fun. And unless we get through that, and even in, in the thing we were talking about, the idea of spirituality where the sheikh or sheikha doesn't, can't tell you, I can't describe to you what honey tastes like. And so my job then is to somehow get you to that point where you're going to be able to taste it. But that space between where you are now or where a student is now and where they're going to taste honey is a space of hard work. And I think that we in our culture today, the Western sort of global culture of ease and entitlement and other things, we forget that epiphanies don't come without a base understanding of knowledge. Just sort of have, you have to know something to have an understanding of it. Right, yeah. You have to, be, you have to know vocabulary and grammar and all these things to mm-hmm. even be able to read the yes. books you want to read. Exactly. You know? And you got to learn that somewhere. Right. So I think that I think schooling might change over the next 10, 20 years, and I think it probably has to. And where is it going to go? I don't know. I have you know certain ideas about what might be healthy and what might be good, but there are a lot more. There's a lot more involved in that than just what might be healthy and what might be good, because there's always money involved, you know. But when we're thinking about our own personal education, and we're thinking about the education of our children, I think it's really important to remember that middle piece because otherwise we're telling our students, whether adults or children, and I run into this a lot, you know, people, they want a pill. When I was, a, I'm much older than you, and in the 80s, there was a, it's 70s, I think, maybe late 70s, early 80s, uh, Saturday Night Live had a uh, sketch, sketch called uh, Mr. Mr. Bill. I'm sure you've never heard of it. And uh, it's just in my head all the time, not all the time, but it comes to me all the time because it's so indicative of something that we're dealing with today in society. And Mr. Bill always wanted a pill. That was the the sketch. And the idea was everything could be cured with one pill. Just give me a pill to cure it. And that's really kind of the society we're in today. You know, give me a pill. Oh, and I get people that ask, oh, you know, I want to have in my prayer. And really what they're asking me for is a metaphorical pill. Right. You know? How do I enter into the divine presence? Can't you just like... Exactly. Just tell just... me what to do. <laughs> Give me a thicket. People tell me all the time, Give me a witted, a witted so I can... Yes. And the idea is I'm going to give them some, this magic formula, this mm-hmm. magic pill. And I think there are quote unquote sort of magic formulas mm-hmm. out there, but those formulas only work after a number of years and lots of hard work involved with them. For sure. So, yeah. Yeah, and we can use the, the physical analogy for the spiritual or for the, the intellectual. It's like, I mean, we live in a time of great abundance. We, our medical technology has cured some of the diseases that threatened our species in the past mm-hmm. that so many of us died from. And yet... Um, we're, not, we're getting incredibly unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the young generation, 
my generation is the first generation in like a hundred years in America that is going to have a shorter lifespan than their parents. And it's purely because of diet. Mm-hmm. Um, eight of the 10 top causes of death in America are diet related. Wow. And the other two are suicide and accident. <laughs> so we're killing ourselves. Uh, a third of Americans are obese. And then we talk about diabetes and clearly um, we're out of balance. Mm-hmm. Like we don't understand who we are in the sense that human beings um, were created or evolved, whatever paradigm you're looking at it, for a specific normalcy. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, if you get too far out of balance for too long, you know, it's just out of equilibrium, it will be destroyed. And, but yet, if you go on television... You know, I haven't had television for a long time, but whenever I go to, like, my mother's house or go somewhere, they have all these, like, commercials for pills, you know? <laughs> and it's, like, it always shows somebody, um, like, running on the beach and smiling and, like, yep. super happy. Super healthy. But then, <laughs> while they're smiling at the end, super fast, it's, like, and this will cause bloating and diarrhea and your head will explode. and all yes. that, Like, super fast, and it's, like... I feel like they should have to show the image that corresponds to that uh-huh. if you're going to sell. Because America is one of only two nations on earth that allows direct-to-consumer marketing for pills. Oh, wow. Yeah. Other places, no. You, it's only to doctors because you don't, the doctor should know. But for us, it's like, no, direct-to-consumer. So people see that, you know, are you eating too much? Are you not sleeping enough? Are you feeling... You know, depressed, or you, you know, all these things. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, a pill can kill that. Yeah. It's like, no. And so, to be physically balanced takes a great deal of um, discipline, what you eat, body movement, how you move, etc. And uh, the mind or the spirit is similar in that sense. Like, and it's not going to all feel good. And that's why, like, the University mm-hmm. of Life. In the University of Life, there's a lot of really tough pills to swallow. There's a lot of difficult lessons that we have to learn, but often those are the most important classes we take. But I think it's just a paradigm to be like, we're in the University of Life. Every time we walk around, everything, something presents itself. Okay, this is today's lesson. Mm -hmm. And everyone is the teacher. That's the Mm -hmm. other thing. Because everyone has a specific paradigm, a specific... Uh, thing that we a set of experiences that we don't have right or specific everyone knows something we don't have and everyone's also a student Mm -hmm. you know what I mean yeah but yeah I think um, unfortunately I think a lot of people just don't like learning for some reason in the sense like school pulls that out of me. I know I was like that too and I think a lot of it was just I was like super rebellious streak but I like to read but I didn't want to read anything that anyone else assigned me right you know what I mean so yeah and that's you know I mean again that's part of the culture as well Mm -hmm. and part of this sort of way that we all live today where yeah I don't know I don't really have a a solution for those things. I think that there's a place where it's a blessing when we don't have to force ourselves to learn what we just are not interested in, like computer languages, which I'm not interested mm-hmm. in. I don't have to do that. I don't have to learn physics. But there's also a space where in my years of sort of interacting with different students of my own, I've always tried to encourage people to be as broad as possible in their learning. And what I usually tell people to do if they're really, let's say they're really a, a math person or myself, who's I've always been a really social sciences and humanities person. If you want to break out of that and start to learn something about the subjects or the areas of the universe that you don't know about, to read children's books. Because children's books boil it all down, make it easy and make it simple and generally make it beautiful as well with photographs and illustrations and cute little captions and that's a way to expand our learning without 
a lot of stress or a lot of difficulty. So that's a that's a good method sure. to move beyond the. What I, when I was, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, I decided I didn't know enough about math and science. And so I, there was a book out then called Poetry of the Universe. Mm. And it was about math. And that was a great way for me to mm-hmm. get interested and excited about math because I love and I'm excited about poetry. And then I read a book about string theory, which was a really good way for me to get involved and interested in science and physics because string theory is all about the strangeness of the universe. So it's interesting. And there was interesting stuff there for me, different things for me to chew on and think about outside of what I was used to thinking about. So So what yeah. was your course of study like in Syria when you were there? Well, my course of study, mm. my I moved there in 90, early, early 90s. And I came back in 2012. And the entire time that I was there, it was continuous from one class to the other Islamic studies. So I started. How was it different yeah. than like Western education as far as how, like what's the pedagogy um, of how knowledge is, is passed? Well, it was very different from, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was very traditional. I was, I, I did two things while I was there actually. I was working in schools in an effort to kind of modernize teaching methods. And I did a lot of teacher training and worked in ESL training and things like that. And I was, you know, working on modern methodologies. And then I would go to my Islamic studies classes. And there it was notebook in hand, pen in hand, lecture, write it down, uh, take notes, read the book, memorize the book, come back, uh, talk about, ask, certainly asking questions was part of it and discussion to a degree but mostly it was learn this information and derive. My personal experience was not only learn the information, but a lot of it was about deriving lessons from it. I think that was really an important part of my own, my own experience on, that, on this path. I don't know that everyone always has that experience, but I feel blessed that that was part of mine. You know, I started out with very poor Arabic mm-hmm. and... At first, my very, very first classes years and years ago, actually even before I moved, were with a translator. I would sit and she would whisper in my, wow. in my ear and I would take notes and that's how I would learn. And then when I moved and I wanted to take that same class again, <laughs> I, I was told, okay, you can take it, but you have to take the exams. So I took tests and paper and wrote papers uh, and... The way I did it, and and when I think about sort of that juxtapositioning of here I am in schools working on a certain type of methodology, but working on a very different methodology when I'm learning, and I was really happy with both. And I think, I don't know, it's something to think about there, which I probably haven't thought about before. But when I was, so that first test, what happened is I was taking the class not knowing I was going to have to take a test. And then my teacher told me, well, you're going to have to take a test here because you're you know, enough is enough, kind of, you know, stop diddle-daddling around and learn the stuff. And my Arabic just wasn't at that level. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was just, I gave myself a fever, and I was in bed for three days. And my sister-in-law came over, and, uh, <laughs> and she said, look, just make a decision. Either don't take the test and just tell her you're not going to do it and just you know, do something else. You know, this was early, early. I, I don't know that I'd even made this decision. I probably had, but that I was, you know, I was, I was in here for the long road. But mm-hmm. oh, just take the test. And so that's what I did. I just sort of got out of bed and decided, all right, I'm going to take this test. And I, I realized that I'm a teacher. I'm a trained teacher. I have a master's degree in education. I know something about this. So if I was teaching this class, what questions would I ask? And the way I studied that very first test, the way I studied for that very first test, I took the uh, book of Ibn Hisham, that's what we were studying, and in the section that the test was going to be on, I thought, well, if I was going to ask questions, what would I ask? And for some reason, I knew there were going to be 10 questions. I don't really remember how that happened. She must have mentioned that. And so I wrote 11 questions. If I were the teacher, these are the questions that I would ask. I wrote 11 questions, and then I found 
the answers verbatim from the text, wrote them down, copied. I mean, this isn't a lot of thinking. This is copied. And then I memorized them. I mean, I literally just memorized the question, memorized the answer. And that's all I had with me when I went to this first, very, very first test. And subhanAllah, the, uh, the test that came that time had nine of the questions that I thought of. So I felt very encouraged. It was very encouraging for me. And even though I came from this background of mem- really looking down and memorizing, it was so empowering to know that I memorized that stuff. And I was able to come in and spit it out. Now, I didn't spit it out exactly correctly. Or I would have gotten 90%, which I didn't get. Mm-hmm. But uh, still, I felt, I felt wonderful doing that. So it was very traditional. It was very kind of old-fashioned. But it was very beneficial for me personally in helping me get over the hump of how do I get from English to Arabic? How do I get from not really knowing things to knowing things? And I think that process is what has taught me the most that the creative process has to come after knowing something. And I think very often in schools today, we go for creativity first. And that's frustrating. Because it's hard to be creative with something you don't know. Right. Yeah, it's like martial arts, right? First you have to learn rote memorization, the same kick, the same punch, the same movement. And then eventually once you get to a certain level of mastery, then you can be more fluid with the styles. Then you can improvise. But not until mastery. Yes, that's exactly what it's like. And I think that piece we are missing in schools now. Like we got, there was a period of time in Western history, let's say, that there was a lot of that really rote learning. There was a test in the Atlantic and published in the Atlantic from like the, early, the late 80s. And I'm telling you, this was published in, I think, the 80s, in the, like 1980 something. But it was from, it was like a 100, like 100 year old test. And it was published in the Atlantic. And I looked at that test in the 1980s and said to myself, I don't think any student in eighth grade today would pass this test. Do you think that it has to do with the fact that in any culture, right, there's like an idea of kind of like a canon, a loose canon, in the sense that these are the texts that are important to us, to our way, you know, in the West educated people read certain texts, right? You're going to read, you know, Plato and Aristotle, and you're going to read Shakespeare, and you're going to read certain novels, and you're going to read certain philosophical works, and you're going to read... And then within the Islamic tradition, obviously, similarly, we have a canon. You kind of build. And even in different areas of the Islamic world, in different time periods, that that changed. I mean, it was based around the Quran and this and that, but the commentaries and then the, the... Books of sacred law, as well as tarbiyah and things, were adapted to specific contexts. And then in every human civilization, you have a similar thing. I wonder if, I mean, do you think it has something to do with the fact that there's been a kind of a breakdown? Like Mm -hmm. the West is in a type of civilizational crisis in the, like, the Western canon that's no longer acceptable or cool. People start to revisit that or, you know, the idea of like, well, those are all dead white men. So now when you have other people, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, or just the idea, because I think in traditional societies in general, there is an idea that like the ancestors knew better than us <laughs> or at least... You know, they were the ones who were more evolved, more awakened, or the ones who stood out throughout times. There's this veneration of the ancients, of the elders, of the ancestors. In all human society, it seems like a kind of perennial thread throughout human society. But the modern world is based on the exact opposite premise. The whole enlightenment is based on this idea like, no, they were pretty stupid, but we know. Mm -hmm. And we are getting better. And we're becoming more enlightened and more progressed and more evolved. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. I think I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I don't know that. I guess my gut feeling about that is that I don't think it's what we've chosen to teach or learn, but rather how thoroughly 
we've decided it's important. So with the modernist period, we really kind of decided that nothing was important enough to memorize and nothing. And so not even poetry. And so when you don't learn or grammar or grammatical rules and things like that. And so I think, I, I think it's healthy that we're moving away from sort of a master narrative in the West and this kind of mm-hmm. canon that isn't, that is based on a bunch of old white men. I think that's a good thing, but I think we can do that and still, and still teach the skills that are necessary to help the human mind and spirit really grow. And for that, my personal experience is that you have to have a base of knowledge. And so if you're teaching, you need to teach some, someone's poetry has to be memorized because you need vocabulary. And we have to read the philosophy of different people. I mean, I would like to see a variety, people from all different cultures and all different spaces and places that our children learn from. I think diversity is very important in literature and in learning, but in the, but I don't think we can get to that space of creativity unless we spend time doing the learning during the learning piece. And that's also true for Muslims. So in our society today, we have a lot of people that are ready to just throw fatwas right and left and decide, oh, it's like this or it's like that. Either on one end of the spectrum, very, very close-minded and strict and everyone is going to hell, or on the other end of the spectrum where everything is okay and it's all fine and there aren't really any rules or laws. Neither one is helpful to us. Both are making a mistake of not being grounded in, in that first base of knowledge from which, like you said with martial arts, from which you can become fluid and understanding and really mal- sort of like clay. Islam is such a, it's a beautiful, malleable thing that works in everyone's life. But if we don't learn it, if you don't, you know, if you don't soften that clay that you have, it's just not going to work for you. And in the same way, if we're not, if we don't really learn it well enough, then it's really hard for us to interact with it in that creative, fluid, smooth, beautiful, beautiful way. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. For sure. For sure. And I, I think that's definitely true. There's kind of a, a crisis of knowledge. Like I was in Jordan a few years ago, and some of the brothers there that were students of sacred knowledge mentioned that it's very difficult to get um, bookshelves in any of the furniture stores in Jordan because nobody reads in that country. There's no, like, none of, they carry couches and tables and coffee tables, but there's no bookshelves. Everyone, people are having to make their own bookshelves because it wasn't an idea about, uh, amongst the Jordanian people that, like, you have books. I find that very, wow. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think in general, there tends to be a, 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 I mean, I know there's like a kind of resurgence and a, and a, revi- a re-interest in, 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 but, you know, for a lot of people, I think Islam is just something you are. You're just born into it. And mm-hmm. it's not like a path of transformation. It's mm-hmm. not like, you know, we were talking about knowledge is supposed to change you. It's supposed to transform mm-hmm. you. It's supposed to, and that's not always sweet like that's sometimes it's bitter and sometimes it's difficult right. and takes discipline but I think there's been a kind of like dumbing down where for a lot of people it's just like no it's just something you are like it's not like it's supposed to do anything to you yeah and I think somehow somewhere in that is this whole concept of identity yes of who am I what's my identity and what does that mean and I hesitate a lot in thinking about this concept of sort of identifying Muslims as an identity outside of faith. Because Islam, in the end, is it's a faith and an action. And yes, absolutely, if you identify yourself as a Muslim, no matter what you do or believe, your identity to yourself is important and valid. But there's a there's a little there's a thread there that just opens the door for shaitan when when we don't hold ourselves to the understanding that a faith is something we choose. Even when you're born into it, you're choosing every day 
to hold on to it. You're choosing every day to believe in it. You're choosing every day to live it to whatever degree you happen to be living it. So I have, I have a lot of thoughts about this new, this concept of identity is new to the world. And the concept of identity is different when you're talking about personal identity and when you're talking about social identity, both of these are different. And as a Muslim and thinking about this word identity, and then of course you add to that the concept of intersectionality, which comes from a different place, but then Muslims are grappling with that right now and thinking about what does it mean to be a Muslim and to be my particular ethnicity and to be a woman or to be a man or to be excuse me, a certain age or a certain ableism, all these different right. things. Those are the social, a social way of thinking. And all of that, I don't want to belittle any of it, but at the same time, I want to always remember that Islam is a faith. It's something that is chosen where you don't choose necessarily um, your gender or your race right. or your abilities, your age. Those are things that just happen to you. Yeah, no, I think about that a lot. And I mean, just the idea of identity, anania, like this, this, like the, the, the meanness, myself. And, you know, ultimately, a lot of that stuff, whether you're thinking about it or, lot, uh, or not, whether it's conscious or unconscious, like there's a lot of metaphysical, philosophical, unquestioned assumptions yes. about that. Mm-hmm. And I think really that the truth about the spiritual path was so beautiful about la ilaha illallah is like, on, on, on a high level, it's like there is no identity but the identity. Like mm-hmm. on the, the ultimate reality is that there is um, there is source, there is creator, there is oneness, there is divinity, there is the infinite absolute truth. And then the, from that comes forth the realm of multiplicity and all of us come into this realm and then human beings, um, we were created like to know. And so it's interesting because um, we, we created you in the Quranic passage. We created you nations and tribes so that you would come to know one another. Mm-hmm. And I think about that because the issues amongst human beings, they, they come along those fissures of differences. Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. you know, whether we're, you know, we're here in a, in a land that... Um, you know, a hundred years ago, hundred plus years ago, there's indigenous tribes. And so your right. tribal identity, that was most important. And so then, you know, battles would be waged based on tribal affiliation and this mm-hmm. and that. Um, in, the, in Arabia, in the time of the Prophet, mm-hmm. it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now in our time, you know, we have nation, we have race, we have other things which are of utmost importance. Um, for identity and identification, but the you know Quranic reminder is that okay, look, differences exist. This is the realm of multiplicity, and all of these differences are ultimately a test to see who people are, to see who you are. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that they're real on the on the realm of the horizontal. You know. Ali, brother Ali and I were talking a lot about this, about race, because like there's a lot, so much conversation about race, whiteness, blackness, and these type of things in the American context, and always has been. And I think what's interesting on a lot of the kind of extreme left conversation is this idea of like, they're almost essentializing the category of race while trying to destroy it. You see what I'm saying? Like yes. you're essentially mm-hmm. a white person. You're se- this is what I am. These these strong identity things. As a white male, I say this and this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you have to be very careful. I'm I'm gonna try to be very careful in speaking about this because it's like this conversation is a um, it's a minefield. Yes. But while affirming the reality, the very real social realities, because mm-hmm. race is. <laughs> it's science fiction, but social reality. That's the difference between personal identity and social identity. You see what I'm saying? Right, so yeah. you can't, a lot of white people are very, made very uncomfortable by the conversation of race because you you don't know what to do about it. And, 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 you know, it's just like, no, we're all one. Like, 
you know, but you can't erase people's lived experiences. And you can't pretend like the fact of skin pigmentation, as well as other things, how people speak, you know, hair color, subtleties of body movement, all these things um, affect how you're received by the world. They Mm -hmm. have meaning in the world. Mm But I think you can get trapped in the horizontal realm if you don't also affirm the vertical, which is that la ilaha illallah. That ultimately we're ruh, we're spirits that, that came into this realm. And if you're a mu'min, if, you're, if you believe in the ultimate reality, then we were placed in the specific context, the specific body, the specific family, the specific nation, the specific tribe. And that this is the test to see who is who. Mm-hmm. And who is going to mm-hmm. become who. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's very easy to like this identity thing. I see a lot of you know young people like really trying to work that out. Like, and um, Yeah. I think it's becoming more complicated for them. I yeah. mean, the, it, it, is more, it's, it is more complicated than it used to be. It just is. And it does take a little bit more working out. And I think the, uh, the, the diff- when you look at philosophically the way in the world of academia we're dealing with the concept of identity, it's a very material sense of you are who you are because of what. There's that question there. And what makes you who you are? And a lot of that philosophy brings you back to the question of is it ha- does it have to do with my body? And so then when you come, and then the answer of some philosophers is no, and some philosophers is maybe yes, but of course when it comes to Islam, where the, I saw on Facebook this great quote I thought was really good, which was, um, don't say you have a body, wait, no, don't say you're a body and you have a soul, but rather I am a soul and I have a body. Mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis. Oh, is that C.S. Lewis? Mm-hmm. It was anonymous on mm-hmm. Facebook. I'm glad to know it's C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really profound and Absolutely. important and very Islamic. Absolutely. And the, um, this, so uh, yeah, so the per- in that, in the personal identity philosophy world, they're struggling with this, is my body my identity? But really our identity is that unseen piece that lives forever. But socially, our identity, so identity socially is what's indicative of oppression. That's where people get the opportunity if you will, it's not maybe a good word, but to oppress one another. And so that's where identity becomes very important because today we're, I think we're getting better at seeing oppression. We're getting better at recognizing it and talking about it and not accepting the microaggressions and the, the stuff that we used to say, well, it's okay about before. And I, I think that's a good thing. For sure. But there is that space where we have to help our young people and ourselves understand the difference between my personal identity, which is forever, and my social identity, which I need to make, which I need to work on the social issues. And it can be super crazy. Like I read this article today, which is written by just some scientist, and he was he was he was talking about um, that science has shown that, and this is sounds silly to even say it but science has shown that men and women are different and you know what i mean because there's this idea and he was talking in the context of the fact that a lot of people in the very on the on the left there they say you shouldn't socialize a child into a gender right right so you shouldn't give girls dolls and boys trucks or whatever like you should let them choose and you shouldn't even identify, like, the, the like, kind of more extreme is, like, you shouldn't I- tell the world what gender they are. Let them decide. You know what I mean? Like, don't say, I have a boy, I have a girl. Like, just, and, you know, you shouldn't get pink and blue. You should get neutral colors, right? Yellow or oatmeal or something like that. Like, and this dude, just from a scientific perspective, had no religious bent or anything. He was just like, look, there's things called hormones. Right. Like, and it's super silly but it's this desire like it comes i think from a sincere place because it's this idea of like you know um we shouldn't force things on people and you know we have patriarchy and we have this and that and we should allow people to choose and we shouldn't force women into certain lines of work and men's okay to a certain extent for sure i'm with that 
but it was just mentioning that like you know um female fetuses there's a specific thing i forget the scientific name for it but it's basically when a, a female fetus gets a larger amount of testosterone than is normal mm-hmm. and there's a specific scientific term for it but the the young you know girls that are born with that they sure enough they want to play with trucks they want to play you see what i'm saying and you and so <laughs> it's hormonal like there's just hormones and we're not yeah i mean i don't know i'm going to push back a little bit on this please. i would say that definitely boys and girls are different mm-hmm. and certainly there are hormonal differences that are absolute and clear and absolutely i do think that a lot of the the what we have to be careful of looking at western culture as and and saying that that Western culture is what determines what is normative for boys and girls. Mm-hmm. We talk about color. Pink actually was a male color in the '30s. If you saw pink, really? you thought about boys. Mm. So, we, these West are, Africa they rock that pink too. Yeah, right? <laughs> Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I think that a lot of it is culturally mm-hmm. set up, and and the problem is that as Muslims, we have to be really careful of adopting the. Western and global ideas of men and women, either on the side of, and in any way, because we can fall into a trap that allows for oppression of women in our communities based on stuff that isn't based in text, but is based in culture that sure. came that comes from an arf or a custom that is outside of ours. And personally, I see a lot of the the hardships, if you will, that women are going through today, Muslim women are going through today, in inner community hardship, uh, coming from, it's from many different places, but one of them is the adapt, adopted attitudes towards women that, are, that it came out of the colonial period. So that when Western cultures came in the, 80, in the 1900s or the 1800s with their attitudes towards women that existed in Europe at the time and brought them to Western, uh, excuse me, Muslim countries, 80% of our countries are colonized. They brought those attitudes and they mixed with some different sorts of political realities. And now we're faced with a situation that is actually really difficult for many, many, many women. And I don't think that... And I, yeah, and I think that it's we have to be just really careful about... Neither the in my view, neither the argument that there's no such thing as girls and boys is valid, mm-hmm. nor is the argument that women are only created for one thing and men are created for, for sure. another thing valid. For sure. And I've heard both, and I've heard that women are only created for one thing from Muslims, you know, sure. and and it feels really horrible to be a woman and being told that you're actually created to. It's a very Christian argument because in the Bible it says that women were created to serve men right. and Adam was created to serve God and Eve was created to serve men. And that very Christian attitude sort of comes in to play culturally and it's really frustrating for young women today to figure out how to live like that because sure. it doesn't, it's not fitrah. It's not unlike what many women are told by many imams, it's not fitrah to grow up and want to do laundry. It just isn't. <laughs> it's not fun for anybody. And while I and I and I also wouldn't say that oh women are naturally predisposed to be more caring. I think that some women are, but some men are too. Sure. And we Islamically, if you look at the Prophet, we all need to be caring. Yeah. And we all need to be doing laundry. Exactly. If <laughs> and you look at his life as sewing, well. Sewing sewing our sandals and exactly. serving our family. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think like for me, actually, to be honest, like masculinity was widely expanded for me when I became Muslim because, yes. you know, grow up in America and like there's this like extreme homophobia and like even like, you know, like you're playing video games with your friend on the couch and you kind of like accidentally brush legs and it's like, don't touch me, fag. Like, yeah. you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And then like I went to Muslim cultures and they're like holding hands and right. feeding each other with their hands right. and like putting their arms around kissing each other on the cheek and like i remember the first time i was walking down the street in, in, a, in a muslim country and the brother grabbed my hand and was we were just walking through the streets and i was like i don't know dude like i feel awkward and then i had to like have this moment of like why do i feel awkward 
Like no one else cares. Like this mm-hmm. is normal for them. But right. like there's this thing in me in my culture, you know. And so I had to have this like check in. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's cool. Like <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And then also like men, you know, I had powerful experiences where men, you know, of all ages literally weeping together in mm-hmm. prayer. Mm-hmm. And you know, like you know, sleeping together on the floor and giving each other massages and like this very like, but also a lot of those men like actually had, were veterans of wars and Mm -hmm. were like the very masculine and some of them having multiple wives and having, you know what I mean? So it's like, it just expanded my concept of what masculinity could be. And, um, but I also saw that in some other places there was this very close, I mean, you know, I had like, I was in Morocco and I, I have, you know, have long hair. I went up to the imam after the prayer and was like, salamu alaikum, trying to, you know, meet him. And and he was like, the first thing he was like, um, you should cut your hair. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, why? Like, I thought maybe he knew something I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, it's just a gray area. And, you know, what he was saying is like, in my culture, in our culture, Women have long hair, men have short hair. Right. And so you have hair like a woman. Mm-hmm. That's not acceptable. But, you know, it didn't affect me in a negative way. I didn't have my feelings hurt because I'm blessed enough to have had so many good it. teachers who told me, like, study the Shema'el, the Prophet, peace be upon him, had long hair. Right. And, and braided his hair on certain occasions and all these things. So, you know, people, like you say, the, the custom, people assume how we do it, that's Islam. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, but that, yeah, study is liberation. But I would also say too, like, I think, again, like the metaphysical can liberate us because Allah, Ar-Rahman, rahim the names, the Jamal and Jalal, right? You have this idea of, very similar to the yin and yang in the Chinese mm-hmm. tradition, that there's the names of beauty and majesty, or that you could say masculine and feminine, these different divine characteristics there's not like value over one of the other mm-hmm. right jamal is not less important than jalal mm-hmm. in fact we know the names ar-rahman rahim are the closest to the name allah which mm-hmm. is the embodiment you know, or the, the the encapsulation of them all rather so if anything <laughs> ar-rahman that's clo- that's leaning towards what we might associate with feminine i mean literally even etymologically ar-rahman rahim womb right if anything and we know Allah's beyond course, gender yeah. dichotomies, but if anything, that is closer than that, you know, Ar Rahman. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a race and gender and and all these. When you're talking about social identities and social problems and social oppressions, it's a really important conversation that we all have to have and think about and learn about different ways to get better in our communities because until we get better. In our communities, with that, that with our with our social identities, we're gonna stay right where we are right now. Which is, we've got some some people that come to the mosque, and they'll pretty much come no matter what. And then you have so many that just will not because they've had too many poor experiences. And you can work on your personal faith identity outside of the mosque. You can work on that at home. You can work on that listening to podcasts and and reading books. But the social piece to make our social situation and communities better, we've got to work on that together. And for that to happen, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on many, many different levels in so many ways. But And I really hope that it's going to be, that that's what we're going to see. I really do mm-hmm. hope that's what we're going to see because I think it's important for the next generation. Because you can't, I won't say you can't, but traditionally the growing of a Muslim into a believer, into a Muhsin, has been in the, in the process of interacting with other people and growing like that. And I think we do grow best when we're interacting with others. And when we are in a situation where that is acceptable to us, and that's not a good word, but where we can hand, I mean, no, no, no situation is ever going to be perfect, but there's a difference between I'm having a bad day and I was frustrated with so-and-so at the mosque today and I don't feel welcome there. Those are two really different things. And so uh, 
yeah, so we need, we need to really work on that as a community, and I hope that I hope we can make those changes because our there's so many Muslims out there that need that need us to make those changes and and provide spaces for people to go to where they can not have to be so concerned about those social identities because they're not feeling the oppression that can come with them so that they can focus in community on that personal identity and connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For sure. Yeah. Sure, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's so beautiful, like, the more we have interactions with people that aren't exactly like us, the, the vaster it makes us. And I, I think one of the saddest things for me within the Muslim community and spaces, like, like I really like, um, like, I need, we all need elders. Mm-hmm. And, like, I feel like, unfortunately, a lot of, like, young men aren't exposed to enough, like, female elders that they can look up to. Mm-hmm. It's not just that women, of course, women need that. But I think that kind of, that's another thing that, like, coming into the dean that, because my family is very dominated by, like, women. Like, it's, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. And so I'm very comfortable ab- around, about that, around that. And um, I just felt the loss of mm-hmm. that. You know, like, there's so much. And I think just general, in traditional societies, you had it more because... It takes a village to raise one, right? But we live in hyper-individualized societies, and now, you know, we don't interact with our gen- with our wider family, even let alone, like, the neighbor. We, we all move. It's so transient. And we get our information and our community online. We've been re- I've been reflecting on that a lot. But, like, in traditional society, everyone's in walking distance, first of all. Mm-hmm. Like, if you live, you've lived, right, in society, in the old Medinas, like mm-hmm. you was. And you, you have the... The elders and no parent, even the best parent, you know, mother or father can give a child the full breadth of what it means to be a man or a woman or a human. So it's like having, oh, yeah, this this is my elders. And it's so beautiful in our community. Right. We call our elders men, uncle and other women, auntie, like and then brother and sister. Like, that's real. Like we we should be this this uh, we should strive towards that. And, you know we get something from seeing all the different mirrors, you know, and Allah creating people with different, you know, quantities of different qualities that, that he manifested in this world. So, um, you know, and, and women of knowledge, you know what I mean? Like that's so important. So Alhamdulillah, it's good to sit with you. Oh, thank you very much. It's good to sit with you as well. Alhamdulillah. The importance of arts in our communities is, is crucial and critical. We need, we need, I agree with you that, I agree with you that somewhere along the line, we missed a space there in making sure that our women of knowledge and women of spirituality were part of the upbringing of our young men. And some of our greatest early scholars and spiritualists, if you will, they're always mentioning someone along the way, a woman along the way of one of their teachers, at least, who, who really helped them. I think that's part of that spiritual parenting, if you will, outside of the biological parenting. But certainly another thing that we've missed out in our communities is the emphasis and the recognition that it's through the arts that we, that's, the arts are a path to spirituality. And without that, we just dry up like a, I don't know, piece of hay in the middle of summer. And that is certainly very important as well. So I really appreciate, I appreciate meeting you. My pleasure. And yeah, I agree. I think, like, if you look at the kind of average, like, conference or event, right, you have, like, 50 speakers, which maybe they maybe all be great speakers. But then you'll have, like, the entertainment section, like one right. performer, entertainer. And it's like this indicates a profound fundamental misunderstanding of human psychology and the human psyche soul. Because what's the point of these events is to inspire, to educate 
you know, in the short limited time you have and to transform, to mm-hmm. awaken, to illuminate. And if you think that happens through speech more than through poetry, song, dance, art, literature, mm-hmm. plays, then you know very little about human psychology. Mm-hmm. That's not even how it was done in the past in our tradition. Right. Like that's, there's, where does that come from? And even like the idea of entertainment, like was Imam Busiri entertainment? Right. Was, you know, the Layla Khairat entertainment? Was Maulana Rumi entertainment? Like, no, these were, you know. Oh, absolutely. Masters and, yeah. transmitting profound transformation through art. Mm-hmm. Because that is how, you know, and Saeed Hussain Nasser said, art is the means by which the deepest truths of a religion are articulated to the masses. Yeah. Very few people are going to be great metaphysicians or philosophers or fuqaha or anything. But if you walk in a profoundly beautiful architectural sacred space, it will transmit something to you. If you see beautiful calligraphy, if you hear beautiful poetry, these things will leave an imprint on your soul and will transmit the depth of those metaphysical concepts to you in a way that's like osmosis, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean... Okay, so thank you for your time, and um, I will go peruse the books a bit more, and inshallah, see you soon, and and continue the conversation many more times. Okay. Thank you for listening to Path and Present Podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so in a few ways. One is word of mouth. People hear about the podcast mostly from people like you who listen and like it and say, I know someone who would connect with this, or who would feel this, or who would enjoy this subject matter. So continue to share with your family and friends. Secondly, you can subscribe, rate, and comment um, on the iTunes page of Path and Present. Subscribing means that the podcast, will, each episode will come directly to you when we release it. And Rating and commenting means that it will grow and uh, come up in the iTunes rankings, which will allow it to be uh, available and uh, seen by more people. And then lastly, you can support financially on Patreon. Patreon is a site which allows people to give a small amount monthly to support um, art or any type of content. And we have a path and present page on patreon the link is on our soundcloud page soundcloud slash path and present and you'll find the patreon link there and yeah you can support there we're greatly appreciative of it uh i guess lastly lastly keep us in your prayers your positive thoughts and your moments of remembrance and thank you for tuning in and being part of the global path and present family one love.